Hey, everybody. It is your host, at Mr. Adam X, and you're listening to the Pursuit Podcast on the Out of Bounds Collective. My sponsor this week is Onyx Backcountry. You might know them as Onyx Off-Road, Onyx Backcountry, Onyx Maps, Onyx Hunt. But doesn't matter what you know them as. Uh, Onyx Backcountry, they're a big supporter of us. We're a big supporter of them. And basically what it is, is a guidebook on your cell phone in your pocket. Live GPS tracking, slope shading. uh, I mean, really everything you need. Routes, maps. You can transfer it from your computer, save maps offline so that you don't need internet, which we obviously don't always have when they're in the woods. But anyway, onxmaps.com, check them out. Save an added 20% with promo code out of bounds, all one word, all lowercase, out of bounds, promo code on onxmaps.com. And with that purchase in the month of November, Onyx Backcountry is donating $10 for every membership sold in the month of November to an avalanche foundation of your choice. So you're really, I think it's $30 for a year subscription, 20% off. And out of that, $10 of that is getting donated to a avalanche foundation. So it's a no brainer. And it's really, it could get you out of a sticky situation. The intel that is on that and uh, the maps and everything else it's it's amazing but that that is our sponsor for this week onyx backcountry check them out my guest this week Rhea Coble, is actually an onyx athlete she is a spartan ultra i think is what they call it athlete a scheme a self-proclaimed schemo she's getting back she's getting into that sport she had a big career in gymnastics and we talked about that and why she stopped doing gymnastics and got into ultra running and endurance sports and the thing I found interesting about Rhea is she loves all races from 30 minutes to 350 miles which I think is rare usually we have people who like those short sprints and people who like the ultra endurance races so Rhea is you know different in that aspect and we talk about it excellent conversation you know i'm gonna leave it at that because i don't have too much to say other than that listen let me know what you think leave a five-star review Uh, send us a dm on instagram send me a dm whatever let me know what you think uh raya thank you so much and for everyone listening here it is raya i'm raya um i Currently live in Denver, but I spent most of my time in the mountains and I'm a multi-sport athlete. Um, I do a lot of different sports. Um, Most of them have something to do with the mountains or outside. And I really like racing to anything from like 30 minutes to 300 miles, which is probably the longest race that I've done. Um, And it took a very long time. (laughs) So yeah, like uh, I'm a professional athlete and a coach. So I spent all of my time either outside or telling other people what to do outside or in the gym sometimes. Um, And I really love it. It's I somehow managed to land this life of my dreams and um, I'm going to keep doing it until I no longer can. (laughs) I find it interesting that you do ultra type races, but you also do short races. That's not that's not in the norm for like ultra athletes, in my opinion. Yeah, I think the big thing is I'm not a very good high volume athlete. So I break um, when I run too much or when I do well, biking for a very long time doesn't really break you as much. But um, it's actually only the last two years that I really like doing short races as well. And I think it's because I transitioned my training to train more like a, you know, short distance runner. But then I add in biking and Um, skiing in the winter and everything else so I have this endurance and I really like going very long Um, but because my training has a lot of intensity and a lot more shorter stuff I think that actually makes me pretty good at short things as well Um, so for a while when I was basically doing ultras because everything hurt too much to go fast for a short amount of time I was just doing ultras but once I fixed myself I realized 
a little bit of everything, you know, makes it much more interesting. <laughs> and turns out if you do a 30 minute race, you don't have to recover for as long as if you do a 30 mile race. So there's benefits. <laughs> yeah. Do you find yourself bored doing the 30 minutes or does it have the same excitement? It's so different. I feel like they both hurt just as much. <laughs> it just one has like the same amount of pain spread over many hours. And I feel like the 30 minute races were some of the ones that hurt the most. So I did the GoPro games, Peppy Space, which you basically run up a ski hill for 30 minutes and you try and do it as many times as you can. And I've never heard so intensely for 30 minutes as I did in that race. So it's a very, very different experience. It's more of a, okay, I can push really hard because I know this is going to end very quickly. Do you ever do races that are just fun? Because <laughs> look, <laughs> fun for a normal folk like me, because I looked, you know, like I said, this was a this was a really quick interview. Uh, you know, we got in contact yesterday, so like I had little time to look up and research. But everything you do seems like a suffer fest. Even this 30 minute race you just spoke of this GoPro race. I'm like, oh, 5K. Cool. Like 30. Like, great. You just run a 5K in an empty parking lot. Awesome. Everything you seem to do seems to be very, for lack of a better term, suffering focused. Um, I feel like, so I think that question comes up sometimes when people are like, oh, this is the hardest race. I think anything that you do at your best effort is going to be really, really hard in the moment. Um, so I think I've done some races that were just for fun, but it wasn't because of the type of the race. It was because of the amount of effort I put in. So I did like my first adventure race was this 24 or I think it was like eight hour thing even. So it's very like short in a relative amount of sense because you do multiple sports. So you're like running for two hours, biking for two hours, um, paddling for two hours. And we didn't go with a goal of placing. We just wanted to get experience and see how they look. And that was just fun. So I think I think that's where the difference comes in. You know, when you do the really, really long races, they're all going to have some time when it's just fun, when you feel so good and it doesn't feel like work and it's just you feel like you're flying and it's just incredible in the moments. And then because they're so long, there's also going to be moments when it's just really, really hard. But I find that for like the longer races and things that, you know, do hurt for some amount of time. I'm really good at forgetting those parts and I just remember the fun part. So if I look back, I'm like, yeah, that was very fun. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, I don't know if you watched Ted Lasso that this season, but he says, be a goldfish. Cause they have like no short-term memory. Yeah. That you just forget, <laughs> like be a goldfish. So all the best athletes are goldfish. Like if you make a mistake, forget about it. And yours are more long-term cause you suffer for some days, eight hours, some days, 30 hours. So, you know, it's more of a long-term memory of suffering, but it is funny how we almost trick ourselves into like, we forget those, the suffering parts. Or even when you go back to a ski tour that you've done a million times, you're like, oh yeah, it's easy. It's cake. And then you get to the one part and you're like, I always forget about oh, this. I forgot about it. Yeah. I forgot <laughs> about that. It's like convenient how our brains, how our brains do that. Let's back up. How did you be, how did, how does one get into ultras into Spartans, obstacle racings. I got a little, I dug a little deep. You were a gymnast, correct? Yes. <laughs> from childhood, from like parents raised you as a gymnast or? I started gymnastics when I was five. Um, before that, I was actually a skier. So my skiing roots go further because my mom and I live next to a ski resort. So every morning she'd take me on skis from, you know, when I just learned how to walk, I think I was probably on skis. Um, but yeah, after that, when I was five, I started gymnastics and that was then basically it for 11 years. That was my life. I didn't do anything else. Um, so when I quit, I didn't know what to do because I didn't know anything other than gymnastics. And it was a very abrupt ending. It wasn't like, oh, I'm slowly fading out of this. It was like one day I was training four or five hours a day and then the next day I was not. Um, so I had like a period of trying to figure out what I want to do or who I was um, and during that time I kind of went 180 away from fitness um, and I gained quite a bit of weight I became pretty unhealthy um, and then I went to United States for college and I feel like it was kind of a means of escape um, I think I wanted to start 
new life and when everybody knew me as a gymnast it was a little bit harder to do that um and I started running mainly because I was annoyed that walking up the stairs was really difficult um and at that time I was 100% into academics I didn't think I was gonna ever be an athlete again so I just basically did it to be a little bit healthier um and I went to undergrad at Berkeley so like growing up in Europe you know, like the Golden Gate Bridge and all of that just seemed like something you see in the movies, but there was this trail I could take that would end up at a bench up high that you would see the Golden Gate Bridge. So that was like, to me, like pretty incredible. So I kind of did it just because I wanted the wow effect. Um, and it ended up being a pretty good like trail run. So I just kind of slowly got back into sports. And I think when you've done something your entire childhood, you don't like, you don't forget that. So it came back like the competitive nature and things like that came back pretty soon so um after about two years of you know doing my golden gate bridge run I signed up for a trail race and I found out I was actually pretty good I've never ran with anybody so I had no idea where I stood in terms of my performance and everything but um turns out running was also something I was pretty good at so once I realized you know I can actually perform I did more and more of them and then kind of accidentally through Groupon stumbled upon obstacle course racing, which just kind of added gymnastics element back to it. Um, and that kind of, you know, started my sports career back again. <laughs> Not to harp too much. Why did you, you don't have to answer this either. Why did you quit gymnastics? Was it injury? Was it like you just you're done? I mean, that happens with kids, not kids sports, but a sport you start so young, you just hit a point and you, you're done. Or is there absolutely no comment on that? Actually, for the first time in my life, I finally have like a good answer for that. Um, I don't know if you followed Olympics this year, um, but with gymnastics, um, what happened to Simone Biles when she got the twisties and she didn't compete um, or anything other than um, beam, that happened to me. But mine was, it kind of was dragging on for a year. And for a year, I was crashing a lot, stopping me there a lot which just made the twisties worse. Um, and I basically got to the point where it became pretty dangerous. And my coach said that there's more to life than gymnastics. Um, so it like basically got to the point where overnight I forgot how to do a handstand. And that was the last time I was in the gym. So kind of left very instantly and decided to do something else. <laughs> At this time, was twisties like twisties is a thing now, right? Like we know yeah. that that exists. It's not like a slang necessarily. It's like kind of a lack of a, it's a technical term that like describes what happens. Was that known what you had or did they just call it a mental block or was it not even like, Hey, you just can't do this anymore. Uh, it was not known. It was not talked about. It was known in the circles, like the inner circles of gymnastics, because it happens actually quite frequently. But when it happened to me, on the to the outside world, it was told it was an injury. So it definitely wasn't talked about. And I never really revisited it. And I didn't know really how to talk about it until this year. So kind of what happened was almost healing to me, because I finally have the language to describe what took away my childhood dreams and back at the time I was like well it's complicated and it's a very long story <laughs> well and it wasn't you know it's so socially accepted now to not be okay yeah. right and that's which is amazing and like she Simone set the set the bar literally on being like hey I if I can't perform at my top then I should let my you know the the subs or the alternates or anyone else fill in and step up because that's but at that level, it's not acceptable or it hasn't been acceptable. So to see that, you know, and hear you saying like, oh, I finally have an answer for that is fascinating. Like it's I didn't know that existed up until she talked about it. And now, you know, when you mention it, not that I can relate in any sense, but, you know, how old were you at this time? I was 17. So it was like right in the middle of high school. So it was heartbreak. I mean, that was heartbreaking. It was very hard. Um, my mom took some time off work just to be with me because, you know, you go from gymnastic is your world and you don't know anything around it to having freed up seven hours per day that now you don't know what to do with. And when you're so focused on something, I didn't have any other interests. 
So I was like, I literally don't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, but it arguably led you to maybe the States. I don't know if you, I mean, maybe you would have came here anyway, but you know, you, you, you went to college in California. Were you planning on moving to the States anyway, or did that help like motivate you to go? And then that, you know, in the end made you find running and now this is your career. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, I feel like if any of those things wouldn't happen, I wouldn't be where I was. Um, so in a way, like I'm really grateful it happened when it did because I could have dragged it on for longer and then I would have missed this window of opportunity to actually be able to, you know, go somewhere else and experience something different. And um, yeah, it, even like knowing how everything ended, if I went back, I wouldn't change a thing. I think it taught me so much about perseverance, about, you know, falling and then trying again and learning from your mistakes that I can use now in anything else that I do. So in a way, I think it's, it was good the way it happened. Yeah. It's easy to look back and have that perspective for sure. But when it yeah. happened, I, I couldn't imagine the, you know, the heartbreak, but it's, it's, it's an important sh story to share. So I'm glad you shared it because not people see you on Instagram and social media and interviews and they just see this rock star athlete, right? They don't see the hardship that you went through to get there and moving to another country and studying. I mean, you have your master's in engineering, correct? I do. Right. Like, <laughs> but like you, these are all, these are all part yeah. of the roadmap and it's not a straight line. Like drive to California from New York. It's, I mean, it can be kind of a straight line, but it's not like it's, a, it's, yeah. you know, it takes a lot of life to get to where you are. And I, you sharing that story is important, I think. But that led you to what, at what point did you know, you said you entered a race and you were like, oh, I'm kind of good at this. At what point did you know you were really good at this? Um, so I think it was not until I started doing OCR. Um, my first, because you can do like the Spartan races either in like open category, which is everybody has fun or in the elite um, and my second race, actually, I, I did a lead cause I like the first one was like, oh, I'm actually like, I passed everybody that I started like now in front of me. So I was like, okay, let's try this. And I didn't know that at the time, but I accidentally signed up for a U.S. national series race, which was the bigger money race. And everybody who's like good in the sport shows up to those. And I ended finishing fourth, which qualified me for the world championship. Um, and so everybody told me world championship is really hard. And I was like, Oh, this is something I should probably try. Um, so I, you know, I started racing more and more, um, just to train for it. And that was probably the first time I started making money with sports. And so I was like, Oh, like, this is like, I'm actually good. Even when really good people show up, like the best in the sport. Um, and I really loved it. So it got to the point where I was doing both my PhD, um, and I was racing and I was making the same amount of money in both. And one of them was making me ridiculously happy. And the other one, I just wanted to finish so I can go back to that other thing. And that was when I decided that maybe there's more than like one way to do my life and um, dropped out of PhD. And I don't regret that decision a single day. <laughs> That's amazing. I did not know that. Um, <laughs> and what year is this ballpark? Uh, 2016. Okay. So 2016, I then moved to Boulder and started doing a very different thing. <laughs> and that was like, that was your full-time committed professional athlete. 2016 yeah. is basically when this like really, really came to life. Yeah. Um, and like, I kind of had the back door left open because I was doing my PhD at Stanford and you can leave for two years and come back. So I was like, well, if like this, like totally does not work out, I can always come back. Um, but it did work out pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I read somewhere that at one point you entered 50 races and podiumed in 50 races. Yeah. I had a pretty good jump start to my OCR career. <laughs> How do you train for that? Um, it's running with obstacles. So really the first part is running. Um, you have to, if you want to be a good runner and do obstacles, you have to be a good runner first. Um, so I trained like now I train like all the different jams combined together, but at the start it was just running. And then on the side, I would 
because I have the gymnastic background, I just naturally have really good body awareness and I can use my momentum to a very good advantage. So I actually don't have to be as strong because I can kind of flow through the obstacle sometimes. Um, but, you know, I did have to start doing more pull-ups and more like hanging and like grip strength and a little bit of climbing too. So it's that combined with fast running. <laughs> what would you say is more important? the running part of it or the obstacle part of it? I think now both of them are really important because you can no longer win races if you fail obstacles. Um, back when I started, I feel like everybody was still kind of learning. So if you were a really, really fast runner, you could get away with failing obstacle and then catching up. Um, but now, like if you miss one thing, then you're off the podium. <laughs> you're done. What happens if you fall off of obstacle? Excuse my ignorance on this. Like I've I've actually worked some uh, like tough mutters and obstacle type races, but I've you know I don't not necessarily involved in them. Do you have to run like a penalty lap, or do you have to just reset the obstacle? So different brands, because like obstacle course racing is still very much brand driven sport. Different brands have different rules. Um, Spartan racing, which is what I mostly do, has a thirty burpee penalty. Um, and that takes quite a bit of time and it takes quite a bit of strength away from you. Um, so there's like this like spear throw that has to stick in a target. And I'm really bad at that because I didn't grow up throwing anything ever. Um, and you know, like it takes 10 seconds to do it or like two minutes to do the penalty. So that's usually the one that really can change the outcome of the race. And then some other races have running penalties. Some other races have mandatory obstacle completion. So if you can do it, you can be stuck there for hours. Um, and then, you know, either do it or <laughs> not finish the race. <laughs> what is the average distance of these races? Anywhere from 5K to 24 hours. Um, so there's just one 24-hour race, and that's the world championship at the end of the year. Um, but during the, the, the year, the 5K, 10K, half marathon, and a 50K are the most popular distances. Um, I used to just love the ultras, the 50Ks, but ever since I stopped being injured and found my speed again, I kind of like to, you know, combine and mix and match. And there's always more than one distance during the weekend. So you could do one race Saturday, one race Sunday. And 24 hours, just as many, it's a short course, right? From what I understand, it's just as many laps as you can do within that window. Yeah, it's five to six mile course. This year was actually 6.8. So the laps were two and a half, like two to three hours long, which was quite, quite long out there on course. Um, but yeah, they're only like five to seven mile loops with about 20 obstacles. And then the winner is the one who can do the most in 24, 25 and a half hours. You get an hour and a half of bonus time. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thank you so much. For that bonus <laughs> they're very <time>. nice. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. We really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I, no, no, thank you. Uh, no, thank you. Do you. Is this sustainable? Like um, doing 24 hour type races? I think like mentally I can handle one of those a year. Um, it really like physically you put yourself together pretty quickly, but I find that the lack of motivation is like the hardest part to deal with. So um, the one that I did most recently was um, I think three weeks ago now. And when I finished that, I was like, and I'm done with running shoes. Let's go ski. And uh, there's no snow. So I'm like, well, maybe rollerblades, maybe bike. And just like, I think it like takes away a lot from your mental energy. And this was my fourth one. And I found it was, well, the course was the hardest, but I also found it was mentally hardest to push through the hard parts because you're like, your brain starts to learn how it feels and it doesn't like how it feels at a certain time of the night um and so i think that's probably the hardest part so i wouldn't want to do more than one of those per year for sure um and then the adventure races which is the other long thing that i do that is 24 hours or longer i actually found those to almost be mentally easier and that is because you're like switching sports and it's not a loop course you always go point to point and it's so it's some sort of like an adventure and you're seeing a new place you've never seen before in a ways you've never seen it before so i feel like almost because of that it's I feel like I could do more of those a year um, and not be burned out. And they, they also actually don't beat you up as much because when you get tired, you kind of switch modes and then different things get tired. Do you, 
we, we can shift gears to that because that's on my list. Uh, so you did the Bear Grylls world's toughest race, right? They put Bear Grylls yeah. on it just to draw people in. But it was a race that's happened for a long time. Uh, it was in Fiji, I believe. It was in Fiji, yeah. You guys got second. Team Canada, correct? Team Canada. I'm Team a flexible Can- citizen. <laughs> <laughs> Team Canada got second. But you didn't have any coverage, right? Yeah. So they um, didn't think you were going to win, clearly. is like this. No. <laughs> or not. I mean, when you got second, you won to me. You podium, you win. Yeah. How long is the race? Let's start with that. It was 700 kilometers. So I think that's like 400 something miles. Um, the race cutoff was 12 days, um, but we finished it in like six days and 23 hours, something like that, just under seven days. How much do you sleep in that seven days? <laughs> um, we totaled 14 hours um, and eight of those were, I think it was about 38 or 40 hours in when there was a really, really like big rainstorm and it flooded a slot canyon that the course went through. So they had to evacuate a few teams. And then we just got super lucky. We were one of the six teams that was already passed there. And so they stopped the course but we were already on this remote river. So they couldn't pull us off the river until like four or five hours down the river when there was like an intercept with road. Um, So they pulled us off there and they stopped the race for eight hours. So it was great. Um, (laughs) There were some villages there and they took us in and it was just, that was probably one of my highlights of the race. Like they have so little, but they made us a bed on their porch and they gave us their clothes because we were soaked. So we were wearing their clothes so we could be dry. Their kids like refilled all of our water bottles. They made us dinner the next morning. They made us breakfast. And it was just like they were sharing everything they had with us. Um, So that was a really good eight hour sleep. And then after that, we only got six more um, through the next like three or four days. Um, We went the last 60 hours without sleeping because we made a mistake. So we got lost for five hours. And it came down to either trying to push through and fight for the podium or taking a nap and giving up our podium spot. But like the last part was on the ocean in a kayak and we were all falling asleep and there was no way to anchor. And I was just hallucinating left and right. And (laughs) people were falling asleep while paddling. So you couldn't tell if the person in front of you was awake or asleep. So that was probably like the hardest thing that we've had to do or that I've ever had to do. So how many people on the team? Let's just like break this down a little bit. So everyone listening knows kind of I've watched it. Uh, it was, I don't know when I watched it last when it came out. I think I watched it. So it's not like super fresh, but yeah. How many people on a team? There are four people on the team. And so it has to be co-ed. Um, the requirement of that is of one person to be the opposite gender. And there's so no. It ended up being three guys, one woman. <laughs> there's no alternates. There's no aid stations no um well every so there were four camps along the way so after every long leg it was about 36 to 48 hours you get to a camp which is where you have your um, team assistant team assistant is usually never part of adventure races so that was kind of like special for this race um and so we got to the camp where all of our gear was each person gets like one big gear bin and one bike box and so we got to that place where like you know he got us like a pizza or (laughs) like fried chicken and fries which was the best thing ever um and so you can kind of like change clothes and then we had more real food which you don't really have on course as much um and we had to stay there for an hour and a half um mandatory before we could leave mandatory so that was also very special to that race usually there's no mandatory stops usually it's like the quicker you are in and out the more time you save how safe are these races I felt very safe. Uh, we had a, of course, like there's things that can, like you can crash on a bike because you're so tired, you're falling asleep while riding. Or like, you know, like we were doing, like one part was pretty treacherous. We were hopping from rock to rock up a white river and th- the rocks were really, really slick. So like every two hops, I would fall and face plant and the river was moving pretty fast. So like if you fall the wrong way, you could get carried by the river. But all of us had trackers on us at all the time and SOS. And actually for the race, they had a helicopter making 
figure eight above the island. So we would always have satellite service. Um, so in a way, like things could go wrong, but there would be somebody to help you really, really quickly, um, which kind of like felt more okay when we were in some more sketchy situations because you knew that, you know, you can really push to your limit because if you cross it, somebody's going to come help you. Yeah, that's a fantastic answer. Not that there's a right or wrong one, but it is you watch it and you're like, if they if you go down here, you're done. You're there's no service. There's no but hearing that. Oh, there's a helicopter that, you know, cruises above you. Yeah. So you make sure. But that makes it, you know, as safe as reasonably possible while riding your bike and sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you know what to bring for these events? Um, we had two experienced adventure racers. So I asked him. Um, this was your first one, is, right? Like This was like yeah. your first big adventure race. Hence, we didn't get any coverage because two of us have never done one before. <laughs> so they were like, they're not going to do very well. Um, <laughs> but it turns out that, you know, like grit and like just being good at every individual sport translates pretty well. Um, but yeah, so like the goal is to bring as little as you can to make it until the end. Um, so I totally revamped my outdoor supply because they made me buy every single thing that was the lightest on the market. So you're really like saving ounces. Um, and then like we didn't really bring sleeping arrangements. So when we had to sleep on course, we would just sleep in our emergency bivy, which was part of the mandatory gear. So you have a mandatory gear that you bring. And then we like thought really, really hard if there's anything extra that we need. And do we really absolutely need that? Because everything that, you know, like if you're carrying a little bit extra for a very long amount of time, it gets you very more tired. Um, so we went like super minimal. Um, especially because we did see our gear, like in every camp, you just had to bring enough for like 36 to 48 hours, which is that one time when we got lost for five hours, we all ran out of water and food because we didn't plan to be out there five hours longer. So you're kind of playing the game of, you know, like bringing as little as you can. Sometimes it doesn't really pay off. Um, but you know, like you try and <laughs> be the fastest you can. <laughs> is there anything you brought that you wish you didn't bring or something that you wish you would have brought <laughs> um so for food they told me bring variety um the longest thing i've done leading up to that was a 24-hour obstacle course race so in 24-hour obstacle course race i would just like eat like a little bit of oatmeal a little bit of bars and everything and so i was like okay but we're gonna be like off like I'm not gonna have access to like my oatmeal and stuff like that so I just brought boba bars because I was like oh that's great they're like 300 calories and like a very small amount and I was like okay this had variety so I got a variety of flavors um <laughs> for four days I was eating one boba bar an hour every hour and I think it's what like two years later I still can't even look at a boba bar so I wish I brought <laughs> more variety of food <laughs> Yeah, nutrition's so important when doing those things because no matter what your intake is, you're burning more calories than you're arguably taking in, no matter what, once those races yeah. start. Yeah, I, no thank you. That's all I have to say <laughs> is no thank you. Actually, like the hardest part about it is that didn't happen to me as much in Fiji. It just happened on the very last day, but I did another adventure race in March and we all got like mouth sores because you're eating so often and you're never letting your mouth rest. So it gets like very acidic. So it really just like eats away at your mouth. And it's really hard to put any kind of food in your mouth because it just hurts so much. So we, we ended up squirting the energy gels like straight into our throats. So we didn't have to touch them out at all because you have to get the calories. And that was like the least painful way to do it. Because at that point, nothing tastes good anymore. So you're just eating for fuel. Yeah, you're literally just eating because you have to. It's not that you're exactly. hungry. It's not that. Uh, how does your, I mean, we don't have to talk too much about gut health, but do you like prep for that? Like there's no preparing for that, right? I think I'm lucky in a way that I can eat a lot and then go exercise right after. Um, and I actually think that maybe that's also because of gymnastics because I had like 20 minute break between school and practice. So I had to go and like stuff myself at lunch. And then 10 minutes later, I was running around in a leotard. So I don't have much problem with like eating a slice of pizza and then going for a run. 
um, in the 24-hour race I just did, I couldn't really eat any more like sports nutrition. So I would take a dehydrated backcountry meal with me on course and I'd be eating that with a spoon on a single track. And then when I was done, I'd start running. So I think part of it, you do have to be somewhat good at it from the start. And then you can also train it because you, you can like have a slice of pizza and then go run. Um, I've never actually had to do that. So I don't know if it just gets worse <laughs> or if it actually gets better. Um, but if, you know, like if there's somebody who's doing it for the first time, that's probably what I would suggest is just like try different types of food right before you do exercise and then see what works and what doesn't. Is there anything you absolutely crave what during any of these events? <laughs> like when I, you're done, what's like the first thing you grab? I went and got broccoli and hummus. <laughs> oh, that's such a boring thing to grab. I know, but I just wanted something that's green. And that was like the only thing I could find in that store. Um, yeah, I really just like, I usually just crave vitamins. <laughs> so it tends to be like fruit and veggies after these races. Cause you do eat like a lot of, um, you know, sports nutrition and processed food and things like that which are calories that you need on the course, but then it's nice to have something a little bit fresher when you're done. <laughs> I would be like, I need a payday and a Mountain Dew right now. These are the two things that I need in my pocket. <laughs> Do you have a lot of Mountain Dew on course? It's not something that you really <laughs> crave afterwards. <laughs> would you say doing these type of races, we'll put ultras, we'll put um, you know, the toughest race, the adventure racing, is it more physically demanding or mentally demanding? I think I think it's really physically demanding in the first day or two. Or like when I, for like Fiji, we were switching sports a lot. And so it was really, really physically hard, like the first two or three hours, um, because you are going hard. You're not like, you know, you're still racing. So you are putting a lot of effort into it. But then after that, it kind of switches to being mental because you can't, you can't sustain like really high effort for that very long. And then things start to ache and things start to hurt or you get just bored of paddling a boat. And that's when it really becomes mental. So I feel like it's a really good combination of everything. And I think it's the same with ultra running. It's physically hard at the start, but then at some point you get tired and things start hurting and you're not really moving to the point anymore where your heart rate would be really higher, where you would be pushing very hard. And at that point, you just have to mentally keep yourself moving. And then I think that's when the mental part comes in. So the better physically prepared you are, I feel like the mental part comes later, but I think it always comes at some point. And I don't think you can reach a finish line without it. How do you pick a team? Um, so for, <laughs> cause I for can't pick a team to go like on a hundred mile bike ride because I'm like, no, I can't <laughs> handle that person. Can't handle that person. That person's too fast. That person's too slow. Like, how does this, are you guys all a group of friends? Is there like an application process? For eco challenge, the team picked me. <laughs> Uh, my friend that I knew, I only knew one person on the team. He was like, I think you'd be really good at that. You should do it. And it was one of the things that like, I knew about it and I really wanted to do it. I just never thought I'd be able to find a team. So he like, didn't even finish asking when I was like, yep, yeah, I'm in just like teach me all the skills. Cause at the time I didn't know how to mountain bike or paddle or rappel or do anything that you actually need to do. So it was like a six months of intense learning, um, for everything other than running. But, um, I think a really important part is that everybody on the team has the same goal. Um, so for Fiji, we like, I'm really competitive. I wanted to win. I didn't know how good anybody else was. So, you know, ignorance is bliss. I was like, yeah, we're going to do so well. And then the two older adventure races that are more experienced, they've actually been in Fiji when the last eco challenge happened there and neither of them finished. So they were very, very driven. Um, to finish and to finish well for sort of a redemption. Um, so we actually talked with a sports psychologist right before the race. And, you know, we made sure we all knew what our team roles are, what, like how, what we wanted other people to do when we're struggling. And also we wanted to make sure we all had the same goal. So when things got really hard, we knew we can push the other person to their limit because they said that that's what they want to do. And so I think that's a really important part of being a good team 
And then in March, I did another adventure race and we were the first ever reverse squad team to podium in the adventure world, um, adventure, adventure racing world series race. Um, Cause we wanted to prove that three women and one guy on a team can be just as fast as three guys and one woman on the team. And so that was kind of our common sense of purpose. So every person gave everything they had and they were willing to be pushed to their limit because we all wanted to achieve that together. So I think, I think when you're picking your team, like it's really important to know that every person is working for the team as well, not just for their own goal. And that has not gone wrong yet for me. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's gotta be just the, you know, the mental strain, like take all the physicalness out of it. Just doing anything with a group of four can be stressful, whether it be planning to go to dinner and now you guys are like surviving, navigating, racing. So it's got to take a mental toll. And it's, I think that's overlooked often. I'm like, we just assume the physical, you know, ability that it takes to do those things. And we're, we're missing the mental chaos that ensues. Yeah. Um, for me, that usually ends up as crying. So it's, I feel like every single team I've been on, we've never once fought and everybody just kind of fought their demons in their own way, but we all were aware of how they're finding them because we talked about it. And so we were able to either give them space or help for that. Um, so I really think the communication beforehand when you're not in that dark spot is really important. So the other people know what to do because at that time you're not going to want to be discussing how you would mentally like to handle that. <laughs> right. No, I think that's important. Uh, my friends do just red, yellow, green, just like, you know, like a stoplight and it works. Cause we're all buddies and we're not on like scary adventures. Like we, you know, we rode our bikes from Pittsburgh to DC. It's 400 miles. So you could do it in three and a half days. If you really want, you could do it in two days if you really wanted, but like we yeah. did it in six, we were hanging out. It's yeah. flat. But like we just, you know, my buddy got like four flats within like 10 miles. So he's just pissed. He's just Oof. mad. And we're all yeah. like razzing him because that's what we're doing. And half of my crew is drinking beers. Like we're it's a party. We're having fun. But he's like, I'm red. And as soon as he said that, we all knew like, oh, this isn't fun anymore. Take a step back. But because we communicated that prior. Yeah, it, it helps. It's I couldn't believe like my buddy brought it up and I was like, this is stupid. And then situationally it happened and like I was doing something and I was like, I'm yellow. Just like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not blowing a head gasket yet, but I'm close. And they all backed up. And so it's communication with that stuff, not me comparing you to anything you do or your team, but it, it's as simple as just communicating. It's similar situations. Yeah. Like it's, you know, humans in distress and you want to make sure your team is helping you and not making it worse. Yeah, it's like someone telling somebody to relax. That never works. It will yeah, never work. Never. <laughs> but that's why the yellow for me, for my friends, it works. Yellow, you know, hey, I'm I'm getting hot here. So you talked about your female dominant team, three females, one male. You hashtag like a girl on everything. Is that a movement? Talk about this like a girl. I think it's a movement, right? We'll call it a movement. Yeah, I like I just like to use it as like we are strong kind of like that kind of sentence without having to spell it out. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I mean I noticed it. I it's like I mean you do it consistently enough that obviously I noticed and clearly you're living that brand and you'd kick my ass in anything and probably everybody else who's listening. So it's how do we continue to promote females? that they can do it. Cause I think our, not to get too deep, but I think our society thinks like it's, I mean, it is a male driven world and I think that's changing for the better, yeah. but how do we continue to like encourage these females? I really think it's leading by example. Um, so I feel like I'm very privileged because when I was growing up, my mom never once mentioned my gender in anything. Like it didn't come up. I would play with whoever I wanted to. I would jump off cliffs or I would play with cars and build a parking garage or I would play with, you know, baby dolls if I wanted to. So I grew up not being aware of my gender defining anything. And then in gymnastics, it was 
already gender separated sport. So I just trained with my, you know, my friends that were also all women. So it, again, the comparison never even came into play because the guys were training somewhere else. Um, and so it never, I never once think that I can't do something because I'm a woman. Like I didn't even think that would play any role in anything that I could do or I could achieve. But when I moved to United States and I started doing more sports, I started to notice there aren't as many of us on the start lines. Or when I do ultra races, I notice women tend to line up further in the back. So in the front, there's mostly guys. And the women that line up further in the back tend to finish in front of a lot of the guys that line up before them. So there is this like, I feel like there is some mentality that's, you know, just the way that society has been messaging young girls that, you know, guys are going to be stronger, they're going to do things better. And I feel like the way to change this is to have kids grow up in an environment that I have where you see women doing things just as fast or just as long, or it doesn't even have to be direct comparison. They're just doing things. Um, and it's, it doesn't matter whether a guy finishes faster or slower, they're doing that thing that's independent of the ach achievements of the other gender. Um, so I really, I like, my, my favorite moment was I did this dual sport race this year. And of course, like the dual sport winner, which was a bike and a run, you would get this like big cape that they would let you wear on the podium. And then they would engrave the name of the, fin the, the name of the winner each year. And so this little girl comes up to me and she's like, whoa, that's a cool cape. Can I like have it? And I'm like, well, it's like you get, you get to wear this if you win a race and then they put your name on it. So like in a few, few years when you race, your name can be on it. And she like looked at it and she was like, whoa, my name could be on it. So like, it was really cool to see like doing something and like her identifying with like being able to do that too when she's older. So I feel like the more we do things and the more we share things, the more little girls will see it and the more they'll think they, they can do that too when they're older. Do you ever find pressure to be a role model? Cause you are, I mean, you're, you know, you, you are a female in a dominated male sport we'll call it adventure racing and you're you know you're one of the leaders of the charge here if not the leader of the charge do you ever feel pressure to be a role model or it just comes naturally of like this is the right thing to do i'm doing it because you're passionate about it clearly and it's just who you are i don't think it's really a pressure it's more of a i want to be doing those things so i'm gonna do them you know regardless and that one time when I was in a three female team, it's, it's just, it feels so good to be in the sports with women that are doing things just the same. And so I really do want more women to come in, but it can also be really frustrating because I looked at the statistics actually for the ultra races, um, especially in the 24 hour race, I really noticed there were a lot more guys than women. So there's this guy that keeps statistics throughout the year since they're like asking for it and for the ultra obstacle course racing the percentage of women is about 15 percent, so it's even lower than in ultra racing on trails and other sports um so i like created a little poll and i was like hey like why aren't like if you're a woman and if you want to do it but you haven't yet like what's holding you back and the main thing was like the, like i don't have enough time to train because i have to take care of my family or because i have kids and i want to be around and so that like I really thought there was going to be like oh it's like because I don't feel like I belong or things like that or I could be like no this is not true but when people say like I just don't want to dedicate that much time to training I want to be around my kids you can't just be like no like you should do it so I do think there's like certain things that maybe that's just the way it's gonna be and it kind of feels powerless because I don't think that you know anything I could do could change that but I feel like there are places where like you could encourage maybe like with the future generations if they see more of that and if you know maybe just the whole mind shift will mindset will shift I don't know <laughs> no no I, I like that answer and I think you know the term the man of the house like if a if there was a family and there was a man in the house and he wanted to go do an Ironman the wife would step up and create time for the man of the house to train for that Ironman and I think with 
you know, my generation that like the man of the house term is changing for the better that like if I had a wife and kids and she wanted to make time to go train for an ultra that I would step up and allow her that time because I know she would do the same for me. And I think yeah. that's, I, and maybe I'm wrong completely, but I think that's changing as far as like just our roles as genders, right? Like it's not, well, I go to work every day and you do the dishes. It's like, no, I'll do the dishes. You go to work, you go for a run. You, you know, it's more of shit. It's more shared, I think. So maybe yeah. that what you're talking about, the making time, maybe in a couple of years, there will be more time because our, our roles are evolving for the better. Yeah. And I also think like historically women didn't participate in sports as much. So, you know, someone's mom was staying home more so that their dad could go work out or do whatever he wanted. And so, you know, the guys grew up seeing that. And I feel like that's changing now because moms are making time for working out and the dads are making time for moms to work out. So the little kids are growing up seeing that. So when they're going to have their wives and their girlfriends, they're going to be used to that. So yeah, like, of course, my mom was making time for herself too. So I do think there's value in like showing to your kids that it's okay to like go on a two or three hour run and then be back and then switch roles. And then the other person goes on a two, three hour run. So I think it just comes historically from the environment in which you grew up as well. Yeah, I agree. I, and I think it's, you know, it's the term selfish, but it's like, it's okay to be selfish. Cause like, if I don't go for, cause riding your bike is selfish or going for a run could be considered selfish. And if I don't make time for that, my mental health is a mess. So like, that's what I need to, like, I need to be a little selfish for myself. So my mental health is strong. Like whether it be a 45 minute bike ride or taking off all day and going for a bike ride, that's, so I, th I think it's changing and I think people are evolving and, uh, you know, you talk about the kids growing up watching their parents. I think that's going to make a huge difference long term, just more shared. Make yeah. time for yourself. Uh, I have a couple more questions. One, you're a badass skier. We didn't even really talk about <laughs> skiing that much. Um, are you do you consider yourself a professional skier or you're just a super athlete? So you're a skier. How does that fall into this whole mix of what you do? Well, I think it helps that I did grow up on skis. So before the whole gymnastics thing happened, I was on skis all winter, every day. Um, and then even when I did gymnastics, like my family didn't take me out of, you know, the gym very often, but they did take me out of the gym when the snow was good. So I have been skiing basically all my life until I moved to the United States. And then the ski lift tickets just seemed too expensive. And then when I was living in California, the whole like, logistics of getting there was just too much so I didn't do it um, and then moving back like moving to Denver like I really wanted to get back into it but again like the ski passes just seemed not worth it and all the gear and then my friend told me hey you can do it for free if you just go uphill I was like oh that's interesting so that's how like I started schema skiing and growing up in Europe I was skiing all my life but you don't go off of groomers there so I was really good at going really fast and you know, carving my turns. And my first off-piste experience was Audi Power of Four, which uh, um, you probably shouldn't do as your first off-piste race. But I just like, I thought I was going to die in that race. I was like, I'm just going to fall off of this cliff and I'm going to hit every single tree. But it's like, when I'm so bad at something, it kind of gives me a really big drive to get better. And that was when I was like, well, like, I don't think I can get better at this unless I do it a lot. So then I got two ski passes. <laughs> um, so I think it was a combination of having like the coordination from when I was little and then doing this one thing that I thought was really, really fun and that I found myself not being very good at it. And so that was like the drive to really want to improve. And so I've, I skied so much the last three years that I think you know, when you do something a lot, you're going to get better. So <laughs> do you see, cause you race that too now, right? Like you don't just ski for fun. I do. Everything's a race yeah. for you. Everything. Well, I actually, like I do some <laughs> skiing for fun. <laughs> I really, I really like backcountry and I like steep lines and, you know, looking at collage just makes me like, like so excited. So 
after you know the racing season ends i do probably like have a month or two when i just do it for fun <laughs> do you ever lose i do um <laughs> i i've been last in races um i've you know i've not finished races um but I don't really see it as losing because it's not like, oh, I was last. I shouldn't do that. I think that would be a loss. But I see it like, oh, I was last. Let me see what people who were not last are doing and let me imitate that. Um, so I think right now I'm kind of in that boat with schema. Um, I think in the last, like people, were, people think that I just came to the sport, but that's because I was so bad the first two years that like I was not anywhere near the top. Um, <laughs> But I've learned so much in those two years and like I, you know, now I have like proper gear and everything and it's really, really exciting right now because I think I'm good enough to be competitive, but I still have a lot to learn. And that to me is like probably the most exciting part of a sport is when you, when you know you're doing something wrong and then you figure out how to do it better and then you just see, you see that improvement on a race day. So um that's why like I'm super excited that uphill access opens because I have a lot of things that I learned last season and a lot of things that I'm doing differently this year and I can't wait to put that on the snow and then you know see what happens <laughs> it's also got to be a little fun for someone like yourself who goes into you know maybe a Spartan race almost expected to win not expected to win but like they're watching you right like cameras are yeah. on you they're interviewing you and now you go to a schema race where like maybe no one even knows your name, but like you know that you know who you are as an athlete and you know you're getting better that like you can kind of like not sneak up on them, but it's got to be it's got to be a different experience entering a race where no one knows your name. Yeah, it, it gives you a permission to not do well. Um, so I feel like in Spartan racing, when I don't do well, I always have to explain myself. I'm like, oh, well, this went wrong and this went wrong and I did this incorrectly. But when you're new to the sport, like nobody cares, like I could be last and it would just be a learning day for me. And in a way, it takes the pressure off of, you know, performing. And I think that makes you perform better because all I have to do is just do my best. And then I either do well, which is really exciting, or I learn a lot from it, which is also really exciting. So either way, the outcome is like makes me want to train harder and go again. <laughs> I love it. You're an owner coach of Cape. That correct? That's I'm just saying it right. It's just Cape yes. with a K, K A P E. Kind of highlight what that is. What you know, what is Cape? What tell me all about it. Yeah. Um actually when COVID started and I wasn't racing as much, I had a lot of free time and I don't like not knowing what I'm doing with myself. And I've always like I've always like coach people kind of sort of informally so I always like sharing my knowledge so I figured I'd actually start a coaching business and do it more formally um, so it's been like I think over two years now um, and I just do very one-on-one -on -one, very personalized coaching for basically almost any endurance sport um, and I really like it because I feel like the way I do it I just have like my probably bandwidth maxes out at 20 people so it's very small but because of that, I can really interact with every person on a very individual level. So it kind of gives, you know, like when I have worse races, but that same weekend my athletes are competing, there's always something to celebrate. Um, so, yeah, that's what Cape is. <laughs> and is it all in person? Is it over Zoom? Uh, no, it's just Training Peaks. It's online programming. Okay. Um, I do have some athletes in Denver that I meet with, but other than that is. Um, online and I I really like it because I feel like there aren't very many coaches that are doing very multi-sport approach and I found for myself just how much benefit I've gotten by training for running with not just running or like doing races that I wasn't like gonna perform the best at and just doing them to supplement and because they were fun and because they built my stoke so um, I do have very much of a multi-sport approach and um, doing things that excite you and not doing it just for, you know, the performance outcome. This is semi-related to the coaching. How do you deal with recovery? How long is the recovery for these long seven-day races? 
And is that something you coach as well? Because I think it's very important. Yeah. Um, for the really long races, for me, the physical recovery doesn't take very long. So I'm back on my feet very short, very quickly. But it does take very long time for the hormones and the endocrine system and all of that to recover. Um, and that can actually be tricky because the first time I did it, I was like, oh, I feel fine. And I went for a run. And then the next three days, all I wanted to do was sleep. So I kind of like, you don't know you're not recovered yet until you try and do something. And so I've kind of learned to use the sleep pattern and just the overall energy levels and motivation as guidance. So when sleep patterns after a really big event go back to normal, and when you're like generally excited to go back to working out, that's probably when your body is fully recovered. But I do a lot of heart rate training. So I do monitor my heart rate, like see if it's lower or higher, or if it like doesn't wanna, you know, rise when I put in more effort. And those are like pretty good signs that you're too tired and you should take days off. Um, and I do a lot of my training easy. So a lot of my days are, you know, easy rides, easy runs, easy skis. Um, it's, yeah, so it's, it's overall less impact because the, you know, the hard days are hard and they're concentrated and then a lot of the other stuff is just easy and it's for fun. And it kind of builds the stoke as well, because you're not struggling out there. You're kind of having fun. <laughs> I feel like your easy and my easy are completely different things, but we'll leave that for a whole other day. Uh, what's next for you? What do you have coming up for the winter? Summer, everything adventure races you're signed up for. What are you yeah. looking forward to? Um, I'm really, really excited for the winter season. So I feel like I keep checking webcams to see how much snow has fallen up in the summit. Um, I live in Denver, but we have a ski share up in Dillon that starts November 1st. So I'm, I'm really excited for that. And I, I'm hoping to be able to go to Europe to do some of the races there. Um, and then end of April, we're doing, um, PDG patrol glaciers, which is like a pretty big schema race in Europe that I'm really excited for. So um yeah i'm like really excited for the winter and skiing um i'm gonna try to qualify for maybe for the u.s national schema team but who knows if like you know like i did pretty well last year but it was a different year where a lot of people didn't race so i literally have no idea where i stand um and we're gonna just have to <laughs> see at the first race back um and then in the summer i don't really make plans ahead um I just kind of wait and see like which races happen, what really excites me once the winter season is over and then kind of go into that direction. I am hoping that Eco Challenge comes back with season two. Um, it's supposed to be in Patagonia and it got canceled for two years now because of COVID. So um, there's been hints on Instagram that maybe it'll actually come back. So that will definitely be on my list. Um, and then probably a lot of things that I haven't done yet. So races I haven't been to yet. I went to Europe this past summer and I did a sky race and I was really bad at it. And it made me really want to do it again. <laughs> so um, probably going to do that as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I don't have a very solid plan. <laughs> I love that. That's I think I don't know if we talked on air about it, but I was like, you're like, oh, I hate planning in advance because it's it's harder. I don't know what I'll be doing in two months. I don't know what I'll like in two months, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> and you seem to be living it versus a lot of athletes who are like, well, I'm training for something in 10 months. And it sounds like you're just on standby and always ready to go. If someone calls you to a race tomorrow, you'd be ready to go. I'd be ready to go. I don't know if I'd perform very well <laughs> at all times <laughs> during the year, um, but like that's kind of always been my dream to be you know in like to have the base fitness to be always to always be able to say yes to adventures and I feel like I got here so it's a really fun place to exist in <laughs> that's amazing uh, where can people follow you follow you on Instagram if they if you're on Facebook if you have a website where do we want yeah, to send Instagram, everybody Instagram is probably best um, I'm most active there and I also have that little link tree I just set up so it links to my website and my coaching website and everything else um so yeah instagram is kind of the centralized spot <laughs> uh what is your handle can you just say it so i don't have to. uh it's rea rea colbel r-e-a-k-o-l-b-l -E it's just your name spelled out correct and last name yes there's not a lot of 
Rhea Colville's out there, so I got the handle pretty easily. <laughs> Perfect. Cool. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. That was a really good conversation. Absolutely. So, everyone, what did you think of that? I loved that conversation. And I say that often, but I do love these conversations. Uh, I wouldn't do this if I didn't enjoy it. So if you enjoy it and you enjoy listening to it, let us know. Leave a five-star review. Tell us why you like it. Tell us why you hate it. Uh, that helps us. It helps us create a better show. It helps, uh, you know, it helps everyone. It helps. What questions do you want asks? What do you, what do you want to know? Who do you want to hear from? Five-star review. Follow at Mistratomax. Follow Big Stick Energy. Their show is amazing. Last episode with Jay Leventhal. Hats off to him for showing up and having the conversation, the tough conversation. And hats off to to Big Stick Energy for giving them a to giving Jason a platform to to have the chat uh, and not just writing him off. So that was an amazing conversation. If you haven't listened to it, listen to it now. I have to thank Rhea. She's an amazing everything i mean i can't it's hard to pinpoint what she's great at because she's great at everything uh her story is awesome so thank you for sharing it stopped recording we actually started talking about vans and van life and why it's so great and i should i wish i recorded because it was such a fun conversation uh maybe that'll be another episode ray and i'll just dig deep into the van life uh, I didn't really talk too much in the intro about myself, so maybe I'll talk on the outro a little bit. I'm currently building a Mercedes Sprinter van, so this will be my fifth or sixth personal build. It's I'm trying to get it done in three weeks, so I'm about 10 days into it. For anyone who cares, I will post some more updates on the Instagram, on my Instagram, at Mr. Adam X. Um, it's it's an undertaking for three weeks, but I'm trying to get it done. The goal is to make it a little bit more of a podcast studio so I can come to your parking lots and your driveways and interview you guys and talk to people who, you know, who have stories to tell. So again, thanks everyone for listening. This is episode 35 of the Pursuit Podcast on the Auto Collective. 35 episodes. It's my longest pause in my 35-episode career. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.